Hey, and welcome to Game Talk, episode 21. I'm your host, Amid Mion. I'm joined by Michael. Hello. And Connor. Hey, guys. Our first topic today is going to be talking about a sort of abstract concept. Um, it's something we like to call game feel. What it is is basically it's how a game, how the various aspects of a game, including like the sound design, including the mechanics, including the visual audio feedback, how all of that ties together to create a unique experience for the game. And in my opinion, a good game feel is absolutely critical to having a fun experience with a game. Uh, the feedback you get while you're playing directly informs the gameplay. And a game without good game feel can kind of just feel like a wet noodle, you know? Like you're controlling things and things are happening, but you're, you don't actually feel fully immersed. Right, yeah. Like a lot of... um. A lot of mobile games you've probably played, like, I don't know, early on at least, they had a lot of really bad game feel, and it would be like, I don't know, the guns wouldn't feel good. You'd be shooting a gun, and it would feel like nothing. Yeah, like, so for an example, game feel in a first-person shooter would include just how the reload animation works, the the sound feedback of cocking the gun, shooting it, aiming it, all of that. All of that contributes to... It definitely recoil. Yeah, but screen shake. All that contributes to fidelity of gameplay. I feel like uh, Dice with Battlefield has got Gamefield nailed down for first-person shooters more than most. They really do because at first time I played Battlefield Three way way back in the day. I think I may have talked talked about this before, but I was blown away by the sound design, and like you could hear gunfire in the distance. You could hear your weapon firing. Everything sounded so visceral. Everything looked so crisp and clean. I'm I'm glad you brought up sound and design because I think just like going over the various things that comprise game feel, sound design is probably the most important to me. Um, I think it's the one you you don't notice it so much when it's there, but the moment it's gone, like it just feels horrible. Yeah, you feel very disconnected. But I have uh, an example of game feel that I recently experienced. That was just so good. It 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 stood out to me, and um, so that example is from God of War, the new game that came out last week. The primary weapon in that game is an axe, right? You can swing the axe; it feels heavy, it feels right, the swings feel right. But the best part about it is that you can throw it, right? And the axe kind of acts like Thor's hammer, in which you can throw it, leave it there, walk wherever you want to walk, do whatever you want to do. And then at any moment, you can recall the axe by pressing the triangle button. So Kratos extends his hand, and the, the axe dislodges from whatever surface it's embedded in and just zooms back into his hand and hits his hand with, like, an immense amount of force. And all of that is conveyed so perfectly. Does the controller vibrate when he catches yeah. it? Yeah, and it slightly vi- it vibrates w- when it's close, and when it's closer, it vibrates slightly harder. Mm-hmm. And then, boom, the impact. His hand slightly recoils. Mm-hmm. When when he catches the axe, like I definitely can tell, an absurd amount of obsessive attention to detail was paid in creating that very simple mechanic. Like I wouldn't be surprised if they spent months perfecting that that very simple recall thing. And if they had gotten it slightly wrong, then it would not have made the impression on me that it did. But every single time, even after I've completed the game. I acknowledge in the back of my head when I recall the axe how absolutely perfect it feels to do that. Have you completed the game? Yes. <laughs> yeah. 
I um I think my best um example of game feel that I can think of is any Vlambeer game. Uh, Vlambeer is Rami Ishmali's company. And um they made Luft Rosers, they made Super Crate Box, they made Ridiculous Fishing, they made Nuclear Throne. And uh, the one I'll um, talk about the most is um, Super Crate Box, because that's one of my favorite games of all time. Even though it's like one screen, all you do is pick up boxes and shoot guns, but everything, like the screen shake is the perfect amount, everything, like, I don't know. There's no, like, it's a, it's a PC game, so there's no vibrate or anything, but I swear, I f- like watching it, I feel like there's vibrate. Like, because they got the screen shake and the sound so right. Yeah, I can't understate how much good game feel contributes to your immersion. Right. You know, like a a series that I feel like is very good across the board for game feel is the Soul series, Bloodborne included. I feel like From Software is a master of not just atmospheric uh, perfection when you're exploring their game worlds, but creating a very unique style and feel to the way you play that game. That contributes to how you enjoy it. I think that's mostly true. I think they kind of missed the mark a little bit on Dark Souls 2, like they did in a lot of regards, on um, the feel of the weapons. No. But, um, yeah, I agree definitely with Dark Souls 1, Dark Souls 3. The weapons And Bloodborne as well. It's just, yeah, the weapons and just the way they handle in your hand, each one's definitely got a different, distinct weight and way they move. Uh, Just... The sound they make when they chink off of a stone wall. Like, all of those little things, uh, those little details add up very quickly, and you appreciate it quite a bit when you're in the midst of things. Definitely. I feel like you can have a fairly boring game, like, overall, like, a fairly lackluster game content-wise, but if your game feel is strong enough, it'll be fun to play anyway. So, like, um... And that's really... That's the key right there for any game. I mean, if the core tenant for every video game, the first question that should be asked is, is it fun to play? And then you can move on to other things like story, yada, 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 characters, whatever you want to do. Right. I think um, it makes me think of uh, when Miyamoto was working on Super Mario 64, they didn't do anything until it felt good to run around as Mario. Like, And that, that's game feel is what he was talking about. They wanted the controls to be tight. They wanted... Um, I mean, probably, I don't know if they had sound design yet, but the sound um, the sound design for Mario, like, when he gets hit, he makes that really loud, like, ha, sound, like, like, it, like it, it hurts you as much as it hurts him, because you have to hear that sound. Another example, when you brought up Nintendo, um, recently Breath of the Wild, I recall reading that when they were prototyping that game, when they finally decided on the climbing aspects, they, like, uh, like fine-tuned how that would interact with your stamina and stuff. And then when they got it just right, they presented it to Miyamoto. So all Miyamoto did was, for an hour, run around and climb up climb and down trees. trees. Yeah. And then, like, when, they were, when he was asked, like, why is this all you're doing? He says, like, because this alone is just so much fun. Mm-hmm. Like, I love doing it. <laughs> and so just honing in, fine-tuning mechanics so that they just feel exactly right. That is something Nintendo's very adept, probably the most adept at. Out of anyone, I would say. They're most consistent uh, with their first-party output with stuff like that. I think so. I think so, too, because, like, when I think of um, turn-based combat, the only turn-based combat I can think of that has great game feel is, is like, is Paper Mario. And maybe Undertale. But, like, Paper Mario, like, 
and um, Mario and Luigi. See, I feel like series. it's it, it might be inherently a little difficult to get game feel right in turn in a turn-based yeah, game. It know? definitely is. I mean, I think Pokemon hits it a little bit in their newer stuff, where like like a, a lot of games do, and a lot of newer games can get turn-based combat to have decent game feel by like just giving good animations and stuff and really good feedback. Yeah, I definitely think games where you have more agency. Yeah, uh, it's easier it's e- to do. It's easier to do. But that just makes it all the more important in games where you have less agency, in my opinion. I agree. Michael, um, you're really big on sound design, and obviously sound design is a huge part of game fuel. For example, like uh, when we were all working on that game together, Darklight, one of the most outstanding things about that game is the sound design that you you implemented. So I, I was wondering if you had anything to say about sound design and how you go about thinking about that sort of thing. Sound design is really important because it gives the, pl- the player a lot to kind of base their environment off of because I can't imagine a single shooter that, I could pl- that I've played that doesn't, hasn't had a distinct footstep sound for everything. So at a glance, at a listen, you could hear everything. You could know who's around you, what's around you, and you wouldn't need to look. And the other end, a sound design kind of sets up an environment. You walk into a house and you hear something screaming bloody murder in the background. You know you probably should run away. It can really elevate a horror game from, oh, jump scares to, oh, God, something's about to jump out. But I don't know what and when or where. Yeah, like actual terror. Yeah. You could put all the jump scares you want. They're not terrifying unless you have something building up to it because you just get numb to it. Right, and when we say sound design, we're not just talking about like sound effects and stuff. We're talking about music as well, and the way music adapts to what the player is doing. Right? Yeah, like music matters a lot. That gentle rise up to like a climax as you're climbing the hill to kill the demon, giant, whatever, makes it feel that much more rewarding than a simple single trumpet just going what in the background while you stab the said demon, giant, whatever. And that's um that's something I think I feel like Nintendo also has a mastery of like um a lot of Mario Kart stages have soundtracks that kind of the music changes as you go down the course in a seamless way so that it always seems to match the section of course you're at no matter what time you reach that. And another thing about Mario Kart games, the little touch I love is how the music sort of speeds up as soon as that uh, the first player crosses into lap three. Oh yeah. Right. So it's suddenly things become a lot more hectic and the stakes become higher. Right. And it's a very simple thing they do. They don't. They only just slightly increase the tempo of the music, and it has that effect. Right. I'm not sure I would categorize this as game feel either, but a lot of games with like health bars and stuff, those aren't linear. They um, like the last bit of your health bar, is probably closer to like a third or half of it, because um, it feels far more dramatic that way. You know, yeah. The longer time your player spends with very little health left, the um the more dramatic it feels. So they'll do stuff like that. I don't know if I would categorize that as game feel, but I feel like it fits the discussion. So taking yeah. what you said and kind of in the context of game feel, games that do creative things with their health bars, like uh, like in Metal Gear Solid Four, for example. I don't know if you've played it, but at the end when snakes like spoilers crawling through like the microwave. And the health bar just keeps, not an actual microwave, but like the microwave radiation. The microwave. Oh. Yeah. Um, and his health bar is just going, like, dwindling and dwindling, and you have to keep pressing, like, circle to just keep him pushing while he's, like, dying and stuff like that. 
And then, like, right before that, uh, or right after that, right before he fights Ocelot, he, like, finds, like, a syringe, injects it into himself, and you see the health bar slightly come back up, and he has enough vitality for, like, the last fight. Like, just dynamically changing the health bar to stuff you do. Yeah. I think, um, and stuff in cutscenes as well. Like, doing that thoughtfully uh, really contributes. I agree with that. And I think, um, I think explaining your systems in gameplay, I think, has, has some element of game feel to it. For instance, Nier Automata, like, actually has save stations that you go to, and it's explained as, like, the androids you're playing as uploading their data to a yeah, backup I, I absolutely love I think that adds games to game do feel. stuff like that. that. Or at least to immersion. They, I, I think immersion and game feel go hand in hand in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think definitely that's closer to immersion, but like you said, they go hand in hand. But, like, games that tie their lore into their mechanics like seamlessly like that that's just so creative and brilliant in yeah my opinion. i'm here for it for sure i'd still like to see uh bethesda try and explain the fact that in all of their uh, elder scrolls games there's an orchestra following you around i want to find <laughs> a reason for that but it makes those dragon fights that much better but i in the back of my head is like where's that orchestra okay so there is um there's not something to explain the orchestra, but um, this is kind of an aside. But there's a um, a fan theory to explain why you can stop and eat um, a dozen cheese wheels and like drink potions mid-fight. If you ever want to Google Dragon Break, um, it's it's like a theory that takes a bunch of evidence from Morrowind and uh, Oblivion to try to explain why you can do those things. Is some type of Zawardo garbage? Huh? No. Just stop time. It's it's pretty good. It's it's a good. It's amazing theory. that people actually looked into something like that. The theory actually makes sense, and I would I would recommend you both read it. Okay. Or watch a video on it. <clears throat> I don't know what you prefer. Any final thoughts on game feel? We kind of. Um, it's really important. Um, you can make a good game with bad game feel, and all you have is a bad game. Well said. Our next topic is tutorials. So. How I feel about tutorials and how I feel like a lot of gamers feel about tutorials, they're that sort of awkward thing that you know you have to get through to get to the good stuff. And I think developers kind of know that too. See, I don't know. I think that's only true in some games. So um, I don't think in Super Mario 64, for instance, there's a tutorial there. But, like, it's one text box, maybe two text boxes. And then it is Peach's castle. Like, it's the outside. Like, they just give you a little playground a sandbox. to test the yeah. controls in. I think that's a great tutorial. Yeah. But uh, more often than not, I feel like tutorials, like, just are too, like, laid down with excess text and just drag on and plod on for way too long. See, like, I agree with that. And uh, An example, uh, The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess and its infamous, like, hour and a half long tutorial the very beginning of the game contributes yeah. to a very slow start. It's really hard though. Like, it is, um, yes. for in- so I've been I uh, for those that don't listen regularly, I um I'm working on a game called Perspectrum right now, and I just recently got a lot of feedback for it. So there's a wall jump mechanic in Perspectrum that is pretty much mandatory to play the game, but in one room through just design, I teach you that backtracking is necessary sometimes. And in the next room, I try to teach you that wall jumping exists by just making a wall that is tall enough that you would have to wall jump to get up it. But nobody seems to figure that out because they see a wall they can't do and they start backtracking. Yeah. So I guess I could teach wall jumping first. So you taught them the wrong lesson at the wrong time. Yeah. Yeah. 
So um, teaching through design is very difficult. Yeah, but when it's done well, that's the sign of like a masterful game right. in yeah. my books. And like Perspectrum, it, it's difficult to do it in, but Perspectrum only has five buttons that do anything, I think. So you look at a game like Breath of the Wild or any modern shooter and everything, and you have all these buttons that do different things, and you have to explain what they do at some point. Because like just putting an image up on the screen, the player's not going to learn anything from. So, yeah, I think tutorials definitely run a risk, right? Like, if the tutorial is too long or too boring or what have you, I mean, gamers are very fickle. They could lose interest and put the game down never come back, you know? That's a very real possibility developers have to think about. Unless you happen to be that game reviewer who spent 15 minutes on the Cuphead tutorial. Right. Oh, That uh, tutorial looked so simple, and you just spent 15 minutes because, you know... I think, um... I think sometimes a tutorial can be really good, though. Like, uh, like for instance, I'll talk about Breath of the Wild again. The Great Plateau is widely considered the tutorial of Breath of the Wild, right? It introduces you to all the mechanics. And it's far and wide my favorite part of the game. I don't think any other single part of the game is as well designed as the Great Plateau is. And it's fun to play. See, when I think of a good tutorial, I agree, the Great Plateau is great. That's definitely one type of... Uh one form of good tutorial in which, like, there's a sandbox to learn the mechanics and sort of experiment. The other type of good uh, tutorial in my book is where, from a story or uh, structure perspective, uh, they, they come out the gate, like, punching. So, like, for example, Uncharted 2 comes to mind. Like, right, the intro they, to Uncharted 2. on that train. And... instantly hooked, and you're like, what is happening and you're just trying to survive. Right, and they kind of put you into you that. You learn like, those mechanics while, like, in a very perilous, exciting situation. They immediately throw you into a thinking-on-your-feet situation yeah. where, like, uh, you, you're begging them to tell you how to yeah. how to do something. Yeah, I agree. That's really good. I think uh, Bayonetta does something similar where um, they don't give you any story or anything. They immediately throw you into a fight, and you just you don't have a health bar. So there's, you know, it's just like, hey kill these guys. We don't care how you do it. Just smash some buttons, see what happens. See, like, then we get to, like, the sort of other end. I won't say bad tutorials, but, like, oh, very wow. obtuse tutorials, like Dark Souls, right? Oh, yeah. You just kind of... <laughs> like, Dark Souls, it's so funny. Like, it tells you, you start playing for a bit, it. yeah, and then you, like, walk into a door and there's the first boss. Yeah. It's just, like, like, deal with it, you know? Yeah, and I, I, I like those. I think... If you're not going to give me a super well-designed tutorial like like um, Breath of the Wild or Super Mario 64 or something like that, then give me nothing. I would rather just figure it out the hard way. Yeah. Because I hate, like, but Skyward Swords, hour and a half of just walking. Like, but there's also, no combat, like, there's nothing. Do you think Dark Souls would have a... I mean, this is a whole discussion. But, like, Dark Souls is considered... Kind of, it's not niche anymore by any means, but it's like a, it appeals to a very certain type of gamer for a reason, right? A lot of people don't like that obtuse style, and they want to be told exactly how to play the game, like, and well, okay. you know, to each their own. But like that obviously is a very important thing for a huge majority of players. I, there are ways to design such that you tell someone exactly what to do without ever saying a word to them. Like Mega Man X does it pretty seamlessly. Right, um, no, but I'm saying Dark Souls, I think they intentionally, they could have done that, but they wanted the... You think they wanted I to I think filter. they wanted a filter, right? Like, they wanted, like, 
the first boss is the test. Like, if you can overcome this just through your wits and just through trying and trying again after See, dying and dying again, I'm then like, Dark Souls is the game for you. If you're like, this is stupid and I don't want to do this, then, you know, maybe it's not the game for you. I'm not convinced that that's true. Now, Dark Souls 3, I think, definitely did that. But the first Dark Souls, I don't feel like it really... Like, the first time you see that boss, you're not supposed to fight it. You're supposed to run. That's true. So I don't feel like... And then and then they give you a little extra time to prepare before you have to face it again. I forgot so about that. I, don't, I wouldn't even consider it that obtuse, because you know exactly what you're getting yourself into. You see that fog wall, you're probably pretty sure what's on the other side of it, right? Because you've seen it before. Oh, yeah, the second time, yep. So, yeah, so... And, and like, that door is pretty obvious that you're supposed to run, I thought. I never died against the first boss in Dark Souls. In oh, any playthrough. I feel like that's pretty rare. I think really? Most people do. Yeah, I definitely yeah. died several times. No, I... I died a couple times before realizing there was a door. Like, the moment they give you the ability to drop down and fight him that way, like, I knew, like, oh, well, this time I'm going to beat him. Like, <laughs> you know, they, they take away, like, half of his health for you, and suddenly you're like, okay, well, <laughs> this it, one's the one. A lot Like, the Soul-style games and games like them, they're infamous for... Like, the beginning's the hardest part, I think. Right, and Breath of the Wild was the same way. they need to hammer those concepts into you. And then once you have those in your head, Mm -hmm. you can play the rest of the game with, like, pretty adept skill. Like, you know what you're doing. It's just a matter of executing at that point. Right, I agree with that. Um, You don't do a ton of learning after the very beginning. And that was true of Breath of the Wild as well. True of uh, Bloodborne as well. Like, the beginning is by far the hardest part of the game. And I would probably say... The hardest of any of the Souls. Which is why I think a lot of people uh, favor their first Dark Souls game. No matter which one it was, people tend to favor their first because they have fond memories of finally climbing over that that mountain. Mountain, yeah. And you don't get you don't get that twice. You can't. Yeah. I don't know. I would recommend to anybody. um, Ego Raptor has a video about the tutorial of Mega Man X, the invisible tutorial. Um, anybody who's super interested in that sort of thing, um, what he means by invisible tutorial is that um, it teaches you how to play the game without showing you any text boxes or anything. Uh, that's more rare now because controllers have a lot more buttons than they used to. And, uh, you know, you can't just experiment with buttons and always figure everything out right? anymore. Just to bring in something, re- just to talk about God of War again, basically. <laughs> um, the intro to that game, I'm not going to spoil anything, by the way. No spoilers here. But the intro to that game, uh, you're playing, right? And it does have little text boxes that come up like this to move, this to throw your axe, whatever. And then they immediately comes up, then something's presented to you for you to test it. And that, to me, is probably not the best way to do a tutorial. Yeah, but I don't think it is. in the case of God of War, the game feel, the gameplay mm-hmm. was so good I didn't care, you know? Really? It's just like learning how to do things was such a joy just because it they felt so good to do. So, I think um Bayonetta tries something where um it tries to put you in a in a situation that you don't know how to solve and it's like like really quick like you don't have time like something's flying at you or something and then they'll give you a new power and tell you how to use it like at the same time. And if you don't immediately read that prompt and do it, if you do, you feel awesome because you pulled it off. If you don't, you die and you See, have to I do don't it again I, and you feel like I an like idiot. That. I don't know if I like that because, like, giving you a prompt to read quickly, I don't know if that's... Well, it's like a tiny one. Like, it doesn't tell you what's going to happen or something. It just says, like, hey, press this button. Oh, okay. And then okay. that's that's in your move set now. It's not really a quick time. Event. Okay, it's right. It's like, hey, you have this move now. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. But um, 
when it fails, it feels really bad. <laughs> like, if you don't pull it off, you're like, oh, man, uh, watch or die. Uh, yeah. Got to sit through a load screen. Got to try this again. This time I'll get it. It's not a game. And a game that's so important power fantasy-wise, it doesn't really fit. Yeah. I mean, I think that's most of what I have to say about tutorials. I think they can be done well, and I don't think they should be skipped, but... I think they should be skippable in most cases. I mean, I, I, mean, I guess that depends on how the tutorial is implemented. If yeah, it's like just tutor- like the beginning of the game, then... Yeah, like the Great maybe, Plateau yeah. shouldn't be skippable, but like the, the Twilight Princess one should be, where yeah. it's just telling you the controls and stuff yeah. over forever. My, my philosophy is that the sooner you can just give control to the player, the better. Right. And some games, obviously, every game is different. Some games you can do that sooner. Some games take longer. Like, I think it's wild. Um, Ocarina of Time never really tells you how to swing your sword. It just says press B. But there's, like, all these special moves you can do with it if you are using the control stick correctly and locked Mm -hmm. on and all. But they're never mandatory. They're just cool things you can do. Like, you can chop up the signs correctly and stuff. And maybe there's some secrets if you notice it. Yeah, I like that a lot. Like... Good tutorials should definitely stimulate your curiosity and make you wonder what else is possible with the knowledge you've been given. But then Wind Waker, the next Zelda game, gives you this long tutorial where you're fighting this old dude with a sword. I remember that. And, like, there's no reason for it. It's the same controls as Ocarina of Time, exactly, except you have a counter now. And the counter, your controller buzzes, the A button flashes real big. They could have not told me about the counter, and I'd have still known it was there. When the time came. And also, on top of that, you don't use the counter until the... For the next six hours, you don't use it, really. An average playthrough. So you've forgotten the tutorial by the time you need it. So it's just kind of absurd that they put that in at all, in my opinion. You know? Yeah. I think maybe they could have given you a tip later in the game that counters existed or something. But they make you do it three times. Like... They test you to death, and it's it's bad. And Wind Waker yeah. is one of my favorite games, like, but it's good bad. Good tutorials are definitely hard right. to get right, you know? I think anything where you test the player a ridiculous number of times, and, like, like when you have a dialogue box that's like, hey, try this, and, oh, you didn't yeah, like it. I, I think th- that's it always bad. It definitely needs to be a little more organic It needs organic to be, like, that. yeah, like, hey, like, you want to make sure the player knows how to wall jump? Put a wall. They have to wall jump. You want to make sure a player knows how to swing a sword? Put an enemy, like... And that, that is a barrier. Don't put a text box barrier. It doesn't feel good. Right, because then you're kind of, like, cornering the player, right? It's either learn or die, you know? Right, so. and, the, you know, it, it, they're stuck either way, but I, they're stuck doing something that's maybe a little bit enjoyable with the enemy, yep. if, assuming combat is a good part of your game. Mm-hmm. Any final thoughts? Uh, I think I've said all. I think I've said my piece. Yeah, I have nothing to add to this. All right. Our last topic for today is going to be a discussion about game engines. So I have um, I have a short spiel, I want to say, before we dive into it too much. Um, I think a lot of game engines... I think a lot of gamers have weird misconceptions about game engines. Like, I see a lot of comments on Steam and stuff like, oh, I was going to buy this game until I saw it was made it's in Unity. Unity. Yeah. Or like, oh, this is, this is stupid and unprofessional. It was made in Game Maker. But um, the truth is none of that matters. If you can make a good game... It doesn't matter what engine you used. Like, the engine is the least interesting part of the game, usually. It's just it's what, a tool it, that yeah, you use. Yeah, it's just a toolbox. It's what like, you do with the tools that count. Like it, If you give somebody who's not going to make a good game Unity, they're going to make a bad yeah, game. I mean, like, if you give somebody who's going to make a good game Unity, they're going to make a good game. Ori in the Blind Forest was made in Unity. And that's right. one of the most gorgeous 
games and critically acclaimed games of this generation. So. Right. So where that um where that misconception comes from is that Unity doesn't have a splash screen in games that pay them. They take the splash out. And, I didn't know that actually. That's interesting. And games that are you know cheaper uh, don't usually pay to remove that splash screen, and so the lower quality, cheaper games tend to be branded as Unity more, and so that's kind of they've kind of gotten themselves into a branding issue, which mm. is not great. And that's not a problem I know how to solve, other than trying to educate gamers. Yeah. But uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of engines out there, so um, I'll just list a few that I know. Uh, right now, and we'll talk about them, I guess. Uh, Unity, you and I have experience with that. Amid. Um, Unreal is a popular one. Um, there's Game Maker, Game Maker 2 now. So all of these engines you're listing are free, correct? No. Game Maker is no longer free. Right, okay. But um, Unreal is free to use. Unity is free to use. Um, another one that's free to use is Godot, uh, spelled G-O-D-O-T. It's actually fully open source. Um, so you would never have to pay anything using it. Um, there's Construct 2. There's Love 2D. Um, a lot of smaller ones that you may yeah. not have heard of. <laughs> Most people listening to the show have probably heard of uh, Unity and Unreal. A right. Lo- a lot of a lot of uh, games have have those at their at their heart. Yeah. So um, the and those are good engines. And what they've done uh, for the industry is pretty good. In a lot of ways, they've lowered the barrier to entry of game development by a lot. Um, I mean, kids can learn to make games now. I've I've met uh, a lot of kids in middle school and high school who can work with Unity somewhat competently and make little games and stuff right. for and their a, friends. And a and a pretty common misconception is that you need to be a very adept programmer to make a game. And yes, you need a little bit of programming knowledge, but Unity really assists you with that. Right. It gives and you a lot of the tools to do that without writing, like, dozens of scripts. Unreal and Godot both have what's called a visual scripting language, which is um, you don't actually have to type anything. It's all, it's all put into pictures that make sense visually. So, like, I mean, you need to know the basic concepts, but there's no possibility of a syntax error. There's no nothing like that. You don't have to make sure something compiles because if you're just using the tools they gave you, it will compile. And... Um, uh, recently, I just did a little experiment with myself making a game using only Godot's visual scripting just to see if I could, just to see how that felt, and it was fine. I didn't run into anything I couldn't do that I wanted to do. It was very powerful, very efficient, effective. I mean, I'm a programmer, so in the future, I'll probably program in Godot, but uh, using the visual scripting worked. I could see anybody learning it. Yeah, and that lowered cost to entry, I think, is a very important thing because... Game development, uh, there, there's a is is fascinating because there's a technical side and an artistic side, and those two things have to like work in harmony to make a good game. Right. And a lot of artists can kind of execute on their art vision without worrying too much about like, is this going to mesh well with programming? Because Unity gives them those first steps to actually be able to implement right. things and test things themselves. Right. Now, uh, to do something crazy, you'll still need technical knowledge and all, but, like, if you have an idea for a creative shooter, you probably don't even really need a programmer to get a prototype built. You know, Unity has all the tools there. There's Asset Store, and you can just make it happen, you know? Right. 
And I think that's wonderful. Um, the downside to that is that you have Steam flooded with games that look hardly finished. They're asset flips. They're very cheaply made. And that also contributes to the like the negative perception. The negative perception of Unity, Unity but, has. And, and that is... It's easy to use, so yeah. a lot of people use it and just make little, you know, whatever they want to make, essentially. So, And that's good. I think it's good that people are making little stuff and whatever they want to make. I think it's bad sometimes that, that they're, they're selling it. they're trying to it. sell it, yeah. <laughs> but, um, I don't know. People want to get into the industry. They they have the right to try and fail. Yeah. You know, try and fail or try and succeed. I also I wanted to kind of bring up the a discussion of game engines that various companies own, like Dice with Frostbite right. and stuff like so that. I, I don't know a ton about them and like nobody will because Right, I know like, like we won't down. know the technical knowledge, but like Frostbite 2 is pretty powerful. Um, I think it's interesting, though, because we've seen a lot of... So for those that don't know, that's the engine that powers, like, Star Wars Battlefront and uh, battle, the Battlefield games. And Mass Effect Andromeda, oh, which really? was yeah. a mistake. Yeah. Um, did, uh, it, did it power Dragon Age as well? I, I don't know. I don't Dragon Age so. Inquisition? I don't, think, I don't think maybe? it did. Okay. Because um, Bioware didn't know how to use it, really. Mm. It wasn't. They didn't make it. They didn't know a ton about it. It probably... If I had to guess, it's probably not really user-friendly because it's made in-house. So they don't have a ton of incentive to make it super user-friendly, super easy to learn. See, um, internally developed game engines that are then congruently used by that studio to make their games, that can be a very potent combination. Right. Like, uh, look at Naughty Dog's game engine, for example. Oh, yeah. Like, they've used the same engine for the Uncharted games and and for the the Last Last of Us games as well. And, like... And Obviously, I, that engine is maturing over time, and um, but the, the core, you know, capabilities of that engine have been the same for over a decade now. And I, I imagine there's a lot of strength in writing an engine specifically for one platform, whereas Unity is multi-platform, Unreal is multi-platform. And I, I think it definitely, it kind of shows, too, in the game itself. Right, like, Naughty Dog things can do things. Things just have a level a... of polish that other games do not. Right. And just making your own engine, I feel like you have... Just more freedom in yeah. general. That's why I chose to You know to ri- all the ins and outs because I, you made it. I chose to write my own engine for Perspectrum just because I wanted to learn what goes into that. And I don't regret that necessarily. I won't do it again probably. And I, I will say that using someone else's engine uh, right, without yeah. giving being given a, like a briefing or a tutorial is an absolute nightmare. Yeah, Amit had to use my level editor that I designed for Perspectrum. We we used parts of the Perspectrum engine for a game jam one time, and uh, it was interesting to say the least. I I've actually refined it since then and made yeah. it much more user friendly. Yeah. Uh, with some help from some other people, like giving me tips and all. But um, yeah. I, I and I imagine that's true of like Frostbite too. There's a good chance like Bioware just didn't know like. Yeah. I imagine the documentation isn't excellent. Uh, right. Another engine that I'm actually really interested in and I hate that it's not available for me to use at all is called the UbiArt engine. Right. It's uh it's what they make Rayman Origins and Rayman Legends in. It was an engine designed so that a team of almost exclusively artists could make a good game. And if you look at um, Rayman Legends or Rayman Origins, like, those games are heavy on art. But, like, mechanically, they're fairly simple. There's only, like, a few mechanics. It doesn't seem like a and lot of... fantastic 2D platformers. Oh, yeah, they're amazing. They're some of the best out there, for sure. I think Rayman Legends may be my favorite platformer. Incidentally, favorite Rayman Legends is going to be free on PlayStation next month. Oh, really? So Definitely get it. Have it, you yeah. played it? I have. Or, you... I tried it. But I've never. You need to play it. it. It's so good, but um, 
Yeah, that's that's just an engine. I would love to see how they did it. I would love to see the source code for it and stuff, but that'll never happen. Ubisoft's not going to release that to the public, ever. Right. <laughs> and um, that sucks. These engines that are internally developed are, you know, the cornerstones of these games. They're, like, they're worth incalculable amounts of money to, like, because, you know, without them, those games wouldn't even exist. Uh, a cool engine story I kind of want to just bring up is... Uh, Hideo Kojima's search for an engine for his new game. Have you guys heard of this? No. So after Hideo Kojima and Konami had the falling out, you know, he got scooped up by PlayStation, and he instantly, he had, he's a very creative man. He had ideas, he wanted to start making a game, but he lacked a game engine, and he didn't want to spend the time and the resources to develop his own engine. So he essentially went on a tour, like around the world, visiting major game studios. Basically trying to see what engine would be a good fit for his <laughs> Just game. Just use the internet. <laughs> it's Kojima. He's Kojima's gotta be, a nut. He's got to be flashy, you know? Uh-huh. And he, when he arrived in Amsterdam at Guerrilla Games, the people who made Horizon Zero Dawn, he was presented with, like, a golden flash drive inside a, an ornate wooden box, <laughs> you know? And uh, after they showed him the ins and outs of the engine and how polished it was and how beautiful it is uh how, how beautiful the, gra- was the graphics sold. were he was sold and yeah. the horizon engine is now being used to develop death stranding really but a very interesting collaborative effort collaborative effort is ongoing with kojima's team and gorilla's team any additions or changes each team implements to the engine the other team also has access to so they're both concurrently sort of improving the engine together while making their next games which is a really sort of you know that's cool, awesome. little, cool little story there. So I think um, I, that's that's sort of how Godot works as well. It's just a lot of indie people getting together, and there's only like two or three full time staff working on Godot, I believe, and um, everything everything else is like somebody's making a game with it. Oh, I need this feature. They make it. Godot has that feature now. <laughs> that's really cool. Yeah, I mean they you know I think the full time people polish it up and stuff. But another cool anecdote is like. A lot of people think they can look at a game and tell what engine it's made in, absolutely and that's not. that's absolutely yeah. not true. Because like you know, sh- I mean, one shader can make you not able to tell for one thing. But um, uh, I suppose from a gameplay perspective, if you were looking at strictly that, then maybe no, don't you could agree. pick out little quirks. Because like, I mean, maybe maybe if you're paying really, really, really close attention to how the physics work. But if I'm writing my own shaders, my own player uh, controls, and everything. You're not going to be able to tell that I'm using Unity, right? Because yeah. I because I wrote all that, you know. Yeah. The only thing, um, and my my reasoning here is like, p- people don't know this, but um, Animal Crossing and Ocarina of Time run in the same engine. That's crazy. Within Nintendo, yeah. yeah. I I'm yeah. So That's those games have no insane, actually, yeah like yeah. they don't look the same, they don't feel the same. No, nothing about them. Except maybe, like, the way menus work is a little bit yeah, similar. Yeah, engines, game engines are very versatile tools. Yeah, so so don't, I, I guess, just the again, only, I'm going to say only re- don't have engine prejudice. Yeah, the only reason I made that comment was because of, you know, these first-party Sony studios. Like, you play one of their games, and you can... Oh, yeah, that's play the same one of them of, before, That's true of Ubisoft yeah, as well, yeah. yeah. So, engines... But that's not the engine's fault. Y- yeah, but... That's the studio using the tools to kind of make the same sort of mechanics each time. Right. Did I say the name of that engine, by the way? The Kojima engine? No, you did It's called the Decima engine, which I think is a really oh, that's a good name. cool name for an engine. I don't know. A lot of people, um, there's a lot of stigma out there among, like, 
I don't want to say wannabe game developers, but like people who don't know a ton of uh, armchair game developers maybe would be the better term. People who say like if you choose to work in Unity, you're not a real game developer. Like people that say that's, if you're not that's writing nonsense. Yeah, it, people will say if you're not writing your own engine in C plus plus. And then you're not a real game developer. And I, I, for a while, I fell into that trap. I didn't ever say it to someone else, but, like, I I would admit that for a while I was writing my own engine a little bit because people were saying stuff like that. And it's absurd. It's not true, and it's garbage. So don't don't buy into any of that. You don't have to write your own engine these days. That's the year of our Lord 2018. <laughs> all right. Yeah, what about all those artists who can't write their own engine? Yeah, exactly. And they're they're... I, I would never invalidate their work. Exactly. Like, the more we enable people to pick up the tools and create, the better off we're going to be, I think. Right. Granted, we're going to get an influx of garbage, but, like... But that's okay. I mean, that's... Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Just don't buy it. Be a smart consumer. Yeah. Of course, that can lead into a whole discussion of, like, Steam's oversaturation and stuff like that, but we're not going to get into that right now. That's, that's uh, two weeks from now. Um, okay, I think we should round off the show. Guess what game I've been playing? God of War. Dad of War. So I'm going to talk to you about God of War. <laughs> so I received this game Friday night. Beat it Sunday night. Did you take any breaks in to that time? eat and use the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. To sleep? To sleep? And sleep, yeah. Okay, So. Just checking. Just let me put in, like, a game has not been able to do this to me for a very, very long time. I think the last time a game had this effect on me was Skyrim when it came out. Really? In 2011, where I just, like, could not stop. And, like, when I stopped, that was all I could think about. So let me just back up a little bit. So this is the fourth mainline God of War game, but it's just called God of War, same as the first title. And it's essentially, it's not a reboot of the series. It's still the same Kratos. It's several, several years later. Instead of Greek mythology, he is in the land of Norse mythology. And the, a lot of the tone from the previous games, the angry, revenge-seeking Kratos, has mellowed out. He's much older now. He's more mature. And he has a son named Atreus. And that's as far as I'm going to get into spoilers, because... This might be one of the most spoilable games I've ever played in my life. Really? Uh, More than Breath of the Wild, even? Yeah. Wow. The story just involves the two of them undertaking a very personal journey. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. Um, and just the sort of progression in the game, where it starts out... It, it, the game looks gorgeous, by the way. It's one of the most beautiful games I've seen, period. It, it's just the progression of where you start out, a very simple sort of environment... And everything just becomes more and more fantastical and uh, Miyazaki-esque as you play. Um, like the animation director. Right, yeah. How Miyazaki. Um, and by the end of the game, you've seen and done things that are just... That just leave you breathless. There are extremely high highs in this game. Emotionally and excitement-wise. Like, the set pieces, when they finally happen, are insane. The score to this game is absolutely phenomenal. One of the most beautiful video game soundtracks I've heard. And it's a very, I want to say, mature soundtrack. Because it's not only, it doesn't just consist of epic, like, you know, I'm going to kill this giant thing, like, drums, you know, bombast type soundtracks. It has some of those, but a lot of the soundtrack is just 
mellow and like sort of like just whispers over the environment. Really? And just, like in that way, it's a lot like Breath of the Wild, where the sound is just it's there when it needs to be to complement, and then it goes away. The character de- development for Kratos in this game, I did not think I did not care for Kratos in the least. I've played all three of the previous God of War games. Like he's just an angry dude who wants revenge, and he gets his revenge. You know? Yeah. Probably as one note and shallow as you can get as a character for as popular as he is, right? This game takes him from that to probably the most nuanced character I've played in a video game. Period. Wow. Yeah. His relationship with his son and how that evolves and what they go through together. I guess this sounds a lot like The Last of Us, you know. Yeah, just I've seen a lot how of I'm talking about parallels. It. It's really like the only similarity to The Last of Us. I've seen a lot of parallels as well. The only similarity is it involves like a parent and a child figure that's about it you know like it really is its own thing and uh, i haven't even gotten into the gameplay yet the gameplay uh it takes a lot from dark souls and it feels absolutely amazing they nailed the feel of combat in this game i played on the hard difficulty and it destroyed me at times but that was okay every time i died i knew i had made a mistake except for one certain enemy type which i'm not going to spoil here that enemy type sucks and is super cheap and I hate it because, like, they have this attack that, like, blinds you and then they oh. can't see where they're coming from and it's just awful. Don't get hit. Yeah. But aside get from hit. that, combat is very Souls-esque and it just feels great to swing that axe around and throw that axe. Puzzle design in this game, superb. I didn't think of God of War as a game with puzzles. Absolutely superb puzzle design. Hmm. That's another thing. Any preconceptions you have about a God of War game, throw them out. Really? Is this it not is really a beat em not, up anymore? Absolutely nothing like any of the previous God of War games. It's a completely different game. The only thing that's the same is Kratos. Huh. And it wasn't the camera all in one shot. That's yeah, another very much. important thing. The camera never cuts over the course of the entire game. The only time you could consider it cut or interrupted is A, when you die, or B, when you bring up a menu. And that's another thing I want to bring up the menus. There's an extensive. RPG-esque upgrade system in this game. You have various stats. You can equip various upgrades on your weapon um, that supply you with different effects. You can equip various runic abilities that change magic attacks that your axe can do. Like, the depth to this game, not just mechanics-wise, but, like, stat-wise, staggering to me. I didn't expect any RPG elements at all, and it leans heavily into those. Yeah, I did hear um, that there aren't enough resources in the game to unlock everything. Oh, that's absolutely not true. That's not true? It's the opposite, in fact. Like, by the end of the game, you've got everything unlocked, and you have, like, a million XP that really? you can't spend anything on. Yeah. Okay. I thought it was for the crafting system. No, but, like, uh, okay. both, you have more than enough crafting materials. And that's another thing I want to touch on. The crafting in this game, it's done in a way that it doesn't cut, like, menus or anything. It's like it happens on screen, which See, that's is, an, awesome. is a nice touch. See, that's design, even though that's not a VR game, that's a design philosophy that's going to work well in VR. Yeah. Someday. And another thing, just keeping on with the crafting, the characters involved in crafting materials for you, I love them. That's something I never thought I'd say. Like, every single side character in this game is phenomenally developed. Each one has a character arc and character development. Hmm. There, granted, there aren't like isn't like a sprawling list of side characters, but like the seven to eight 
characters that you interact with and stuff around um, during your journey, they're both so well realized and likable. Like, and I did not expect any of this going into a God of War game. You know, that's why. Like, I, I I'll say again, any preconceived notions you have about a God of War game, this game was nothing like any God of War game that ever came out. Hmm. It's an absolute masterpiece, and uh, the ending of the game. Obviously, not going to spoil anything, but I have to applaud the ending because I think what they did took a lot of guts and restraint. I guess I'll just leave it at that. And it definitely left me thinking about the game well after I beat it. And I'm still thinking about it, actually. Like uh, As we speak. As we speak, yeah. And uh, one last thing to note, even after you beat the game, which would take, if you just mainline the main story, it should still take you 20 to 25 hours. Really? If you only do the main story. There's obviously optional stuff to do. Uh, even the, the post-game to this game is pretty robust. There's plenty to do after you finish the story. Really? I wouldn't expect um, that. Yeah, and yeah, in every regard, this game blew me away. It is absolutely one of my favorite games I have ever played, period. Like, it sits up there in at the in in the top echelon in my mind with like Breath of the Wild and The Last of Us and games like that. That's high praise. So that's what I've been playing. <laughs> uh, would you like me to go next? Sure. Okay, so um I'm going to go Bayonetta and Bayonetta 2. Like, uh, didn't so they release a combo pack for the Switch? Yeah, for um well, yeah. I've been playing them on the Wii U though. Okay. They also released a combo pack on the Wii U. So um Bayonetta's development uh, I think they were originally published by Sega, and Sega dropped them. Nintendo picked them up, wanted them to port Bayonetta, t- or wanted them to make Bayonetta 2 for the Wii U, and when they released Bayonetta 2 for the Wii U, it came with Bayonetta 1. So um, I've actually never really been interested in these games at all. Um, I'm usually not super interested. It's kind of, um, Bayonetta's like this witch girl who runs around wearing next to no clothing and smashes stuff. And then Isn't her clothing made out of her own hair? Her clothing is made out of her own hair, and when she uses her powers, it goes away. So, um, I don't know. It honestly didn't super interest me. I'm not that into beat-em-ups, usually. Uh, but my girlfriend actually really wanted to play through it with me. So, um... I hear, like, the mechanics in that game are absolutely crazy. Yeah. Um, I'm not a huge fan of beat-em-ups, usually, mechanically. But this game makes you feel powerful. Like, the combos are fun. They're amazing. Um, I'm actually sort of into the story. Um, It plays like a B-movie, you know? Huge, uh, phenomenal set pieces of, like, like the ground you're standing on. Uh, There's a a mechanic called witch time, which is, like, time slows down. So sometimes Bayonetta will be standing on a bridge that collapses or something. And suddenly you're in witch time, and you're fighting, and all of your enemies are moving at your speed, but the world around your fight is going super slow. So, like, you're jumping between pieces of falling rubble fighting these guys, and it's, it's very fun. It feels awesome to play. And you can also trigger witch time on your own by, like, getting a good dodge, and then you're moving super fast, and your enemies are slow, and you can beat them up. It's very fun. But um, I just love, I don't know, I love how cheesy it is. Like, the one-liners are terrible. And, like, all the characters are awesome or comedic relief, kind of. Like, they're all, they all think that they're amazing and are super cocky and everything, and they're all at each other's throats all the time. And it's just it's pretty fun to play. Strong mechanics. Um, I'd say if you're really into beat-em-ups, it probably has a lot of replay value. It's a platinum game, so... 
And Platinum's renowned for, like, how... well Very going deep back combat. To, yeah, game feel. Like, game feel in their games is absolutely incredible because right. they nail combat. They, um, they're very clear on what you're... Like, you get a grade at the end of every fight um, between Platinum and Stone. So it's, like, Platinum, Gold... Or Pure Platinum, Platinum, Gold, Silver, Bronze, Stone. And they're very clear about, like, what they're grading you on and stuff. So it'd be very probably fun to go through and try to Platinum every stage. Yeah. Uh, I'm not into that. As soon as I finished Bayonetta 1, I jumped into Bayonetta 2. Which one do you like better? Uh, so far, Bayonetta 2 is definitely the better one. I am not. I haven't beaten it yet, but it's just Bayonetta 1, but smoother. Um, smoother, better, bigger. Um, in Bayonetta 1, you're fighting angels the entire time. In Bayonetta 2, you're fighting angels and demons. Variety? Yeah, variety. And uh, I don't know, it's very cool. I don't want to spoil anything story-wise, because I'm actually really... I'm more interested it, in the story than the gameplay. Oh, is, is the story's that good? The story's pretty good. Um, it's good enough that, like, I want to know what happens next. Um, I definitely wouldn't put this in the upper echelon of gaming. Like, it's not... It, it's not, like, something I'm going to think it's, about Bayonetta's afterwards. gotten its fair share of perfect, perfect scores. It's, if, it's pretty, like, really well acclaimed. If Bayonetta 3 comes out, it'll be a day one purchase for me. Don't yeah. get me wrong. But... I, yeah, I've just had, I, it's really fun. It's fun to sit down and play it. I, I don't have a ton to say about it. it. I wouldn't say its design is anything exceptional. It's just, it's just uh, fun, to play. fun to play. The mechanics are strong. The story's good. And I, I just, I'm a huge sucker for set pieces, honestly. It's why I like Uncharted. It's why I like Bayonetta. I love, I love that, uh, like, Bayonetta hits you so hard that sometimes, like, after you finish a set piece, you have to sit back and be like, did that really just happen? Like, yeah. No, I, I get that. The set pieces in God of War left my jaw on the ground. Like, yeah. unreal. I'm a, I'm a anyway. sucker for a good set piece. But, uh, yeah, that's Bayonetta and Bayonetta 2. Good games. Michael? Uh, and I'm going to fl- switch gears and talk about a game I'm going to play as soon as I get home. And that is Battletech, which is a, it's a MechWarrior game. And it's an XCOM kind of style game. Where you control mechs and shoot other mechs with all the standard mech warrior mechanics, including heat and everything. So I'm eager to try it out. Gonna have fun. So you, you haven't tried it yet. I have not played it yet <laughs> because I've been busy for weeks. So have you like seen trailers or anything? I've seen gameplay. So, so when you say mechs, I think of Titanfall too. Is it anything like that? It's not a first person shooter, is it? It's not at first. It's an XCOM style. Oh, game. okay, okay. Top more, down, more strategic. Yeah, okay. all strategic. I think I might actually. I I think more a mech warrior than um Titanfall though, because you're tracking all these um stats and stuff, right? It is a mech warrior game, yeah. Yeah. So, like, there's individual stats for every arm. You could knock an arm off a mech. You could knock the legs off a mech. You could yeah. knock a shoulder off a mech. I think I might actually like that more than mech warrior games then, because I don't I don't like um I feel like I get t- I get really tense in mech warrior style games where like you're piloting and. I don't know. It, they're really slow, but at the same time, like, really tense. And I, I get caught up in that. I think I might enjoy a, an XCOM style more. Yeah. So I may have to check that out. Yeah, I'm going to play it as soon as I get home because I have not had time working the night shift. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do Hopefully it. you don't get robbed on your way back. Oh, I probably will. All right. Uh, I'm really looking forward to next week because we're going to do our E3 2018 predictions, and that's always fun. I'll have to come up with some real ones this year instead of just yeah. kind of stumbling through it. We like can make a game year. out of it, too. Like, we can oh, yeah. see who wins or whatever. But until then, thank you guys for listening. Coming soon, the Live E3 podcast. All right. See ya.